been a couple days. Yeah, so we're back. We had planned to do a series of podcasts about all things related to end-of-life care. We're really trying to break it down and take away that fear factor. Mm -hmm. Normalize it. Normalize it, yeah. Make it just a part of conversation. Um, Because last time we met, you told the story of your kids Mm -hmm. and how you had each step of the birth planned. And I really like that because um, we do spend so much time planning these very big, critical events of our lives. And then when it comes to end-of-life care, sometimes we or our family members are unprepared for that. And um, we're trying to make that transition easier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what really resonated with me was the conversation about, okay, you're going on a trip. What do you need to pack? <laughs> what do you need plans? Like you have your whole itinerary. Tickets. This is what's expected. <laughs> like where do we go from there? And we put we do so much of that, like every day. You're gonna go to Europe, like you know what to expect. Right. Or maybe it, or maybe it's the first time that you've ever, you know, been there. So you wanna plan as much as possible, but there may be things that are not expected and you know, those are the kind of things that we cross totally and when we go into like a medical realm um, there's many times that we plan for how we're going to treat a medical problem or how we're going to manage a surgical issue and um, you know we we talk to our patients about those plans before we enact them and end of life is a little bit different because if it's not planned out it doesn't go as smoothly as it should Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's one of the most important big things that we will all eventually go through Mm -hmm. do you think that the pandemic has shifted the way we think about this topic at all it depends on how you were affected by the pandemic what you went through personally during it, what experiences you had, and how the people who you love who are around you were affected by it. I know certainly there are many families out there who were devastated by the pandemic, and then there are other families who really didn't have much experience with it other than the quarantine. So I, you know, I don't know how much awareness it's brought, but certainly the more you're exposed, and we are mm-hmm. every day exposed to these types of decisions, um, the more you're exposed, the more comfortable I think you become with approaching the topic and the types of decisions that can be made during these types of conversations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I learned in the past, you know, three, which is crazy, it's been so much time, but in the past three years really was that we all could be in a situation where we're vulnerable. And we talk a lot about what it means. Like typically we think of being vulnerable as being emotionally vulnerable, like letting your walls down, letting somebody in, when you're like talking to somebody as a friend or whatnot. And in healthcare, vulnerability means like so much more. And the pandemic just made us all vulnerable because we thought, okay, this could happen to me. This could happen to my brother, my sister. It could really happen to any of us. And 
why don't we have anything in place? Like, why are we not talking about it? So it was a very relatable time, something it, there was like a slogan out there that we're all in this together. And, um, I, that ran through my mind many times when, you know, I was hearing these stories or talking to families or providing counseling. I just kept thinking, well, we're in this together, you know, we're, and not just we're in this situation together, but we're making these decisions together. We're all missing out on our social events and pieces of our lives that we were looking forward to. And we are all going through some degree of stress and we may experience tragedy or know somebody else who's experiencing tragedy. And it's, it, it really was a very, um, it was a very trying time, I think, for a lot of people, but certainly does bring up the question of preparedness, not only for a event like that, that spanned many years, but also for disaster, for end of life, like we are talking about. So it, it's definitely a topic that's relevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think in a lot of conversations I had with people, it was the first time they had ever given it thought. And, you know, ideally think about it before you're in the hospital or before an event happens. I'm sure you see all the time and trauma. I mean, that's just in your face. You have no time to prepare at all. And that's the most challenging piece. So if we could give you a little bit of preparation for anything that's to come your way, that's why we're doing this. So thank you for tuning in. Yeah, and you'll see us smiling and enjoying the process of having this podcast, but it's not meant to be that we think the topics are funny or um, it, it, it's more that we're comfortable talking about this and we, we really do want to normalize the conversation. We wanna make it comfortable. That's our entire goal. Mm -hmm. Um, but going back to what you were saying about, you know, the pandemic and talking to families, can you say a few words about how you approach the topic of DNR, mm -hmm. DNI? What, what do those letters mean? Mm -hmm. And how do you get going with that conversation? And why does anyone need to make that decision? Sure, yeah, so we call this topic code status. We could do a whole <laughs> podcast episode on we it. Probably Maybe that's will. probably what we're going to do. <laughs> um, but when we talk about code status, it's really defining what is important to you. We talk about this all the time. When a healthcare provider asks you about your code status, it's really for you to empower your healthcare providers to enact what you want. And there are several different like levels of a code status that you could choose. Um, they might be different per state. So I think that's important to acknowledge that uh, we have forms that you can fill out. Some, in some states it's a post form, in other states it's called a most form, and it really outlines what code status is. In brief, a code status is what would you want us to do in the event that your heart stops or you stop be your heart stops beating naturally or you cannot breathe on your own and the options i'll go through from level of aggression would be the first one is called full code so what full code means to us is in the event that my heart stops 
or I stop breathing and it could be one or the other. Yes, I would want to be quote unquote resuscitated. Um, so what that means is if I say I collapse on the ground and I have a pulse checked and there's no pulse, then the goal would be initiate CPR, chest compressions that are manual. We look at television sometimes and it's really hard to watch in the event that they may not be kind of representing what chest compressions actually look like, um, but I'll digress on that. Well, I'll just go back and um, because we want to be educational as well. So if you're in a public place and you see someone collapse in front of you, then the appropriate maneuver is to check a pulse, um, preferably on the neck with two fingers. And then if you don't feel anything, then, and they're unresponsive to you, then the next maneuver would be to initiate chest compressions. And you do that while you're calling for an AED, while you're calling 911 as a temporizer, um, because that gives that person the best chance of potential survival. But when we're dealing with code status, we're dealing with it in a situation where you may already be pursuing medical care. So we're typically talking about it in a clinic or office setting or in a hospital setting where you may already be undergoing some sort of medical treatment and that may have some impact on what you ultimately decide to do with your code status. So as we were saying, if you go for full code, it's a full resuscitation. So back to the patient, say, that's getting the chest compressions and you most likely also need more than that. So you grab the AED and you turn it on and you have other providers come to you or other bystanders. And in order to ensure that your vital organs are getting as much oxygen as possible, there is a likelihood that you could require a breathing tube as well. It's hard to say exactly when in that process, but you'll be given oxygen at least during that process to make sure that we maintain your oxygenation to your brain, which is very important. Yeah, so, um, and, and as you all know, if you listen to the first podcast, um, my background is that I'm a trauma surgeon. So I have situations where patients are brought to me um, to take care of them. And there's been an unknown period of time with that person being unresponsive. Like an accident may have happened and then the emergency medical team shows up to that scene. But what we don't know is when the actual accident occurred to when the medical personnel came. And so there may be an unknown timeline and all of that. So there are situations where even with everyone's best effort, 
um, the results are not successful. And that's probably also a little mm -hmm. bit different than what we're talking about today, but I like that we can, <laughs> you know, we can throw these topics in there and yeah. like as little well, know, it's an interest for our next podcast right. together. Well, that's, that's, it's an interesting concept, right? Because we had actually changed the way we speak about the attempt. So when we talk about resuscitation, we are letting you know that we will try our best or we will attempt resuscitation. Um, the alternative would be do not attempt resuscitation. So we added the attempt portion into a DNR, do not resuscitate, because we want to make it clear that anything that we do is an effort. I like that. Yeah, it does. It does make sense because I, I can think of several situations that I've been in where we do everything but the patient does arrive with an order to not place a breathing tube mm -hmm. or to not do chest compressions and we are able to do many things that are medical um, mm -hmm. or life supportive but that are not those particular things that that patient would not want mm -hmm. yeah or as aggressive as the first level of treatment or the initial attempt resuscitation. Sure, so. because even with a do not resuscitate mm -hmm. order or a do not intubate order, we can still provide oxygen or provide medications that improve the circulation. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, there's so many things we could do. I think that's, that's probably one of the strongest mix conceptions about a DNAR code status is that it means don't treat or don't act or don't you know do as much as you would previously but I think that's uh, definitely a misconception as far as what treatment is provided so and not just a misconception on the part of patients or, or lay people I think it's a misconception also on the part of medical staff because there are times when we have a very specific conversation and we outline exactly what the wishes are and the wishes themselves can be such that there is a little bit of confusion sometimes after the conversation like mm -hmm. um you know situations where someone would not want the physical act of chest compressions um, but they want medications to be given that would improve their circulation so if they want those medications and those medications are not completely effective how much do you add or how much do you ramp up on that until the point where you're now going against their wishes. And th mm -hmm. those are sort of the difficult questions that we get into um, when the situations are complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our conversations about just code status can go on for like 30 minutes to an hour at least because it's so complex. And when we're looking at all the different levels, there are a lot of options. In fact, we have four 
that we really explain. So we went through full code. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about now the next kind of step down sure. from that. Yep. Or maybe I shouldn't say step down because step down implies <laughs> that it's like maybe worse, but it's just option number two. Option number two is <laughs> do not attempt CPR. Okay. However, I'm okay with full treatment, which also includes intubation. Okay. And so to be clear, CPR is the physical act of chest compressions. Um, and of course, everyone should be knowledgeable about how to do it. We're not going to get into it on this podcast. Take CLS. But um, <laughs> taking ACLS. a class um, online can be very helpful. Mm -hmm. it, you would be surprised how many times you might use it in the course of your lifetime mm -hmm. um, or wish that you knew how to do it. I mean, I've, I've been on at least two flights mm -hmm. where there have been situations where they've asked for medical help. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very valuable to know and feel comfortable with that process. Mm -hmm. um, but that's CPR. And then the intubation is the process of putting a breathing tube, which will then be connected to a ventilator. And that breathing tube goes into the mouth and down the throat into the airway. And it, it sits there secure during the time that you need to be on a vent. Mm -hmm. And that vent is a machine and it provides support to your breathing or it breathes for you. That's right. Yep. So that is a level, I would say, of a treatment option for code status. Okay. So what we typically see with that code status, it can be a little bit gray. So we really want to define, you know, a few things and many people that have lung issue that have been on a ventilator before but their quality of life may be diminishing and they say you know if I'm on a ventilator and now I cannot speak for myself as well as I could or I have the tube in my throat and I cannot communicate with you I do not want CPR if I lose my pulse if my heart stops and, and that's fair and does anyone ever give you a time limit on a ventilator like is it appropriate to say try to breathe for me but if it doesn't work then yeah absolutely I think that's the probably one of the most common selections would be I want a trial and we talk about this all the time what what, what is a trial what does that mean to you I think it's important to understand what that means to healthcare or why we would ask about a trial because our concern is that we won't be able to get that information from you. So let's go down and see how long is it acceptable for you, but also what are the limitations of our intervention that's acceptable so that you don't get other complications. So if you're on a ventilator for a couple weeks, we really you know, there's complications associated with that. You could get pneumonia. You could have other issues going on. We want to get you off the breathing tube as soon as possible, off the ventilator, breathing on your own as soon as possible. 
But if, if you can't, but if you can't, then what do you, what should we do mm -hmm. within the context of this is what we would do. And so that could be, that decision really could be on a timeline. Like I want you to have put me on that ventilator for two weeks. And then if I look like I cannot come off, then mm -hmm. I want you to do, you know, mm -hmm. whatever it is that comes next. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's an attempt to successfully remove that tube. And sometimes that's moving forward with the next step of the airway, which is to make it more secure for the next step of the healthcare process. And that does sometimes involve the movement of the breathing tube that's in the mouth down to the neck as a tracheostomy. Not always, but sometimes mm -hmm. that is the next step. Mm -hmm. Right. So when we're having these conversations, it can be a lot of information, but it's important to know all of this so that you can make decisions in a linear manner and we can, you know what to expect. Because the last thing we want to do is just give you an option and you not have all that information because you need to make decisions not just for today, but for two weeks from now, from a month from now, from two months or years from now. And so I also want to be clear that this isn't necessarily the level of conversation that needs to be had every time you're in the hospital. There are times when healthcare goes in a direction and we are seeing some indicator of clinical decline or the potential to need to use machines to enhance the care that we are providing. And it's in those situations particularly where this topic comes up what is your code status? And it's just another way to say, what are your wishes for yourself if ever a time comes when we have to make an emergent, very fast decision, or you cannot speak for yourself in that moment? And mm -hmm. I've had people tell me, well, I don't, I don't know what I would want, so call my sister mm -hmm. or call my spouse who will give you, you know, the information that you need. And the next question I always ask is, mm -hmm. does that person really <laughs> know what you want, right? Because right. if that person doesn't know what you want, then making that call at that time is also not helpful. Mm -hmm. But so that's option two. And then what would be next? Next option is... I want to forego the breathing tube, forego the CPR, and we didn't really talk about shocking, you know, defibrillation, but that's kind of in alignment with the with the chest compressions. Um, so everything up to that point, so that's what, how I always describe it, is you're still going to come in, we're still going to provide care, mm -hmm. you're still going to have everything treated, but if it gets to that point mm -hmm. where your heart has an arrhythmia or you cannot sustain the work of the breathing on your own, we're going to not move forward with the physical CPR or the placement of the breathing tube. Mm -hmm. And so what does that look like? 
I mean, what what does that really mean? I have patients say mm-hmm. to me all the time, I just want you to stop. <laughs> but I, and I always have to correct that. Like, we don't just stop. We're, <laughs> we're, you're still in the hospital. You're still critical if you're getting to this point. And so we don't stop. Mm-hmm. What, what happens next? What yeah. does that look like? It's called selective treatment. So... If you choose to set limitations on some things, then we're going to have a conversation on what is acceptable to you. So that's the conversation we have is, okay, these are the things we can do. Do you understand what that means? Is that in alignment with what you want? Is that acceptable to you? If not, let's go through what is. So antibiotics, is that acceptable to you? Sure. Is the intensive care level of treatment acceptable to you? Do you know what that means? Does that differ from a regular hospital bed? And why? And we go through that. We talk about feeding tube. Feeding tube. We talk about, you know, a more invasive line, I guess you would say, instead of an IV in your wrist, it may be in your neck. Certain things like that. Dialysis. Um, Dialysis. There are medications we were talking about earlier that are called pressors um, that help increase your blood pressure and sustain your circulatory system for a period of time with those medications. So we go over all of these things, all these interventions that is in a package of what we call selective treatment. But it's basically everything that you could want to sustain longevity just shy of a natural death. And what would be the last option or option four? Um, And the example would be someone comes in, they have symptoms of some sort, Mm -hmm. they want some level of treatment, but they don't really want sustainment. They don't want to keep living if they're not going to be living outside of the hospital successfully or you know they have a terminal condition and they know that what option is that mm-hmm. I think it's really important to address and I did we did this in the first episode but the differences of what a palliative treatment plan is versus hospice and then the gray area of what comfort may mean for somebody. So I think even in the code status conversation, this code status option would be a DNAR, DNI, comfort-focused treatment, and then really defining what interventions that may mean. So for somebody that maybe does not have an imminent time frame and imminent meaning a very short or um, when we talk about imminent with it's it will happen it is just a matter of time so if we could explain it that way it's a little bit easier to understand but if somebody does not have a very short limited of time then we talk about interventions that may be comfortable for them it still could mean antibiotics it still could mean hospitalization it still could mean fixing a broken hip. I think there are very, you know, defined interventions that help for comfort. 
And what do you say when someone says, well, comfort, I mean, that sounds good. That's what I want. I want to be comfortable. Who doesn't want to be comfortable? Mm -hmm. But they don't really qualify Mm -hmm. for that terminal condition piece or their situation is not imminent. What options do they then have if they want to be comfortable and they don't really want to pursue a lot of medical poking and prodding what what do we do in that situation Mm -hmm. we again ask what's acceptable to that person and depending on what they're there for i mean some people choose to never come to the hospital at all we'll never see them so it's it it is a unique conversation because we work in a hospital but there are people that may never show up so for those who do show up there's usually a reason and you ask them why and what's been going on and just as you would do a workup for anybody, you would do the same thing if willing. If you sit down with somebody and they're like, you know, I don't, I changed my mind. I was anxious about something, or maybe I have this condition, but I don't want to know. I just want to go home. Then I think that's a fair conversation to have. It would be a comfort treatment plan. Although I think it also is important to define what comfort is and what it is not because if somebody does not have a terminal diagnosis or is not imminent then the code status that usually most aligns with that is selective treatment if they're kind of nearing towards the end of life or have a chronic condition and do not want to pursue hospitalization then we would gear towards the comfort focused treatment plan but somebody could look at your code status and see that you may not want to be admitted to the hospital and have to have further discussion on if that if that aligns with your wishes or not. And I wanted to get back to something that we said much earlier in this conversation. We talked about a pulsed or a molst form. Mm-hmm. And um, we did address in the very first podcast that that's more for patients who have um, a life expectancy of one to two one years. To two years. Mm-hmm. And so it's for chronic mm-hmm. conditions that have been diagnosed that are undergoing some level of treatment. You've met with your physician and you've had this level of conversation where you've gone through all of your options and you're picking and choosing what sounds right for you if you're in an emergency situation where you cannot speak for yourself. Mm -hmm. Did I summarize that? Yes, exactly. Okay, good. I I passed the quiz. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, another thing that you said at the start of this conversation is that we do this code status conversation for Mm -hmm. a patient. (laughs) everyone for everyone (laughs) if you are admitted to a or if you even come to the er it is a very top of the mind conversation i think but for some reason our default is full code i think that's important we touch base on that but that is something to not gloss over also (laughs) because well why would you know that? Why would you, if you're a lay person and you're not in medicine, why would you know that the default is full code? But that 
is how it is. Is that everywhere? I'm not no, quite sure. No, it's not I'm everywhere, but where we are, it is. <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's something that Might as a healthcare system, <laughs> you know, as a, as a society, we'll say, that we focus on a lot, yet we really do have the opportunity to kind of make this, you know, a global topic and see what other people do. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, sometimes I look at a situation and I think to myself, if I were in this situation, I know exactly what I would want from my medical care, but it doesn't really translate that that's how that person feels about it. So I like being in a situation where patients take on the responsibility of deciding their own code status. I think that's the best way to do it because then your healthcare provider or your family isn't necessarily in a position where they're making a decision on your behalf. These are, mm -hmm. you know, your own wishes that you're putting into writing or that we are documenting for you. And we're making those decisions based on current situation. And then correct me if I'm wrong, but you can make that decision every time you're mm -hmm. seen and it can be different every time. Do, right. do I have that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. We like to say it's fluid, so <laughs> you can change your mind. Um, that's also why we re-ask, which to some people may be like, I've already done this. <laughs> why are you asking me again? But it's important. You should ask every time. You Just know, to I make I sure. Yeah. yeah. What if you change your mind? Things what if change. You, yeah. Situations change. Right. Your quality of life may change. You may have a whole new perspective, but that does lead me to say that in our conversation, I know going way, way back to when you when I didn't answer your first question, but how you have this conversation, a lot of the emphasis is on your quality of life and what that looks like to you and how this would impact that. So I don't know how many people know, but after you have all these things done, what does that look like? Like if I'm on a ventilator and I, or I have CPR and I have injury and I have these things that are now put me in a different spot than where I was when I came in, what does that mean? What does that look like? So, and how you balance that against the hope of recovery, right? Right. That's been a real challenge too, because, um, you, you know, as a healthcare worker, you know, you never want to be the person who says there is no hope. Mm -hmm. And I think we try to not say that. We try to look at these situations as recovery is going to look like this. Mm -hmm. The road to recovery requires that. Um, you know, you may be faced with these complications or these difficulties as you go along. Mm -hmm. Um and I think we also try to make some prediction of the level of recovery. And I, mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to talk about that for yeah. a second, which is, um, you know, we have patients who come in or their families who come in and they say, well, we're just hopeful. Um, or, you know, we're, 
we're praying for this to all work out. Mm-hmm. And there are times when the situation is such that there will probably be survival. Survival means alive. Um, and then we sort of go from there. Mm-hmm. Like, if there's survival, will, will there be interaction? Will we be able to communicate? Mm-hmm. Um, will we be able to provide information and have that person understand and then respond to that? Mm-hmm. Will care be able to be provided at home or does it have to be done in a facility and for how long and will there be independence and if so to what degree Mm -hmm. and I think the first thing that I always look at is do we have a chance for survival Mm -hmm. and if we do then the decisions really go to either the patient that we're caring for or if they can't speak for self to the family. Right, which goes right back to where the whole purpose of this is to have that conversation on what is acceptable. I mean, the one thing that I hear all the time is, I don't wanna be a vegetable. Like, what does that mean to you? So you hear that? <laughs> I will tell you what it means to me. Yes. Um, and, and this is what it is. Vegetative is, no response to your outside environment at any level spontaneously with purpose to touch to sound um, or to any other stimulus that is applied around you or to you it's it's there's no external sign that there's a reaction to any of that um, so it can look different in different situations. Mm-hmm. Um, eyes can be opened. There can be blinking. There can be eye movement where it appears that there's looking around. Um, and there can be movement even in a mm-hmm. vegetative state, but that movement doesn't necessarily correlate to an interaction. And, that's sometimes very difficult, mm-hmm. I think, to, to know what that is. And it, it brings me, I know that we're kind of going all over the place, but this is what's fun about a podcast. <laughs> we can talk about whatever we want. Um, but, you know, it brings me to vegetative mm-hmm. is the state of being that's decided on in most healthcare directives. Yes. Which is very different from code status. They are like mm-hmm. kind of two separate things. And then the third separate thing is the pulse or the most. So mm-hmm. there are like a few different ways of having to look at this. And if, yeah. if you think your healthcare directive is adequate detail for all situations it probably isn't Mm -hmm. because most of them are just looking at what you would want if you were vegetative right yes and they (laughs) do not particularly address code status okay so rewind code status (laughs) options four options full code do not attempt resuscitation full treatment which is intubation allowed 
do not attempt resuscitation, do not intubate, continue selective treatment, do not attempt resuscitation, do not intubate, con um, comfort-focused <laughs> treatment. Those are the four. Okay. Yeah. Full code, DNAR, intubation, DNAR, DNI, continue selective treatment, and DNAR, comfort. And with all four options, there are still choice. So mm -hmm. you are still in control of what you decide, even within those four options. Right. And you can also choose one at that time and then choose otherwise at a later date or even within the same hospitalization. We do see that. We see mm -hmm. people who come in with a code status and they mm -hmm. want to change it in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we just have that conversation and we make the change. Mm -hmm. What do you think about code status? Let us know in the comments.